matter what community I am interacting with, no matter where I am, I want people to know that my goal is healthier, more fulfilled relationships in the world. Even if that means saying I was wrong. Eden, and this is Keep the Mess, Messy Conversations with Messy People, where we have conversations about how we relate to our bodies and go down whatever rabbit holes we find. I started this podcast because I'm a bit obsessed with this topic. I struggle with embodiment myself and wanted to learn about how other people live in and out of their bodies. I figured if I'm interested in these things, chances are that others are also interested. So welcome, fellow obsessives. In this episode, I speak with my friend Daniel. This episode was recorded March 4, 2023. My face hurt from laughing so much during this conversation. Daniel and I have been friends for a long time, and our relationship has certainly had its highs and lows, and I'm glad we have been able to navigate it with so much humor. In this episode, Daniel talks about his experiences of trauma, his sexuality, being a father, as well as his journey with the Orthodox Church. Content warnings for talk about classism, homophobia, transphobia, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, spiritual abuse, self-harm, and suicidality. And lastly, I want to remind people that just because I have someone on this podcast doesn't mean I agree with them on all matters, or even many. These episodes are not about facts or saying things perfectly. They are people's stories, their experiences, their processing. Connecting and communicating with ourselves and each other is a messy affair, so I ask for a listening ear and some grace. All right, here's my interview with Daniel. All right, well, we will start recording. Three, two, one, blast off. Blast off. All right, so my first question is, how do you and I know each other? We know each other through a person I met in high school who happens to be your sibling. Mm-hmm. I was emailing this person for years, maintained a friendship, and eventually you and I started emailing. And then when you returned to the United States, we maintained our friendship through distance and time and youthful stupidity. And we still attempt that, which is really cool. <laughs> so you are one of my oldest friends. Yeah, we've been friends since I was 12, I think, 13, maybe. Um, With my memory issues, I don't feel like doing that math, but it's been a long enough time. I would say, oh, let's see. It's more than half of my life. Almost 20 years. Almost 20 years. Wow. So the way that I remember it is that my family was using dial-up internet, and um, which, to be fair, I think we were using past the point that people in America were using it. Um, although I don't actually know that. We had cable at that point for context. <laughs> okay, well then, yeah, like you know, we were. It was a missionary family. This is the way it goes with technology. Yeah. Um, But we were using dial-up internet. I remember the horrible sound that it made, because I hate sounds. And my sister, you know, had 
gone to school with you and like was concerned about you and like your drug use and like all this stuff and for some reason you guys were emailing you two you two were emailing and and I being the annoying younger sibling was reading the emails over her shoulder which she seemed <laughs> to be cool with for some reason and and then she told you she's like you know Clean at up the your time. language, don't tell me such things. <laughs> well, she didn't actually say clean up your language, or maybe she did. But what she told me was just that she said, you know, my, you know, given the time, my, my, my sister is reading these emails. And you cleaned up your language. And then my sister thought, you two should start emailing. <laughs> <laughs> and how did that work out for your sister? <laughs> Yeah, I guess we we really became more of the more friends over time. Um, it was yeah, it was the beginning. It was the beginning of a bizarre friendship. Yeah, we wrote long long emails, which I have no patience for in anymore. Zero. It's because we've both worked jobs where we look at spreadsheets for a living. <laughs> you know. I guess I did do that for a while, but yeah, I just don't, I haven't, yeah, yeah, I don't like being, looking at email all the time or writing emails all the time, but yeah, but yeah, we've been friends primarily long distance, as you said. Yeah. Um, and. But you flew out for my child's baptism. I flew out for mm, your wedding. Like. I flew out for your wedding. You I was did. a. Uh, quote-unquote groom's woman <laughs> at the time you you made me wear a, a dress <laughs> which I, find... I don't remember making you wear a dress i remember that being differently i just assumed that you would be no you said wear a dress oh. and i was like fine <laughs> i'm sorry i was young uh, and dumb <laughs> I didn't know then what I know now. <laughs> and we also, there was definitely tension between us at one point. Tension. <laughs> Will you tell me more about this tension? <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, why do I say things? Um, so there was a summer where we were texting a lot and calling a lot, which, and, and also then like we made this, you know, that like if we're 30 and single, um, <laughs> like not that we would be engaged in a romantic relationship, but that like we would be together and like live next door to each other or something like that. And like all this stuff, because we had both recently, uh, gotten out of some concerning relationships. Um, yeah. Mine was definitely abusive, and my perspective on yours was the oh, same. Yeah, and yeah, it was a mess. It was a huge mess, and we were yeah talking a lot. And then, unsurprisingly, you were interested in having... A romantic relationship with me and I was like bah 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 um and was like I'm kind of gay 
which you already knew. And, oh man, I think. You couldn't pay me to go back to my early 20s. <laughs> me Could neither. Could not do it. Because then I, of course, like a month later, started dating a guy, and then you didn't talk to me for a couple months, which, looking back, I think is fair. Um, <laughs> at the time, I thought you were full of it, but like, hey, looking back, I'm like, oh, that was really... true. I was definitely okay. full of it, and my emotions have validity. <laughs> yeah, well, it was it was pretty shitty, and I think what I recognize now was that, uh, you know, I didn't want to ruin our friendship because we were really good friends. Um, I mean, we did kind of ruin our friendship temporarily for that. And also, I'll be honest, you were drinking a lot and you were kind of an asshole when you drank. That's fair. Um, I don't remember that time as drinking a lot because before the end of that, I think it was three or four months that we didn't speak. By the end of that, I was drinking a lot. Mm. So, yeah, I... Yay, substance abuse instead of therapy, I guess. Tale yeah. as old as time. So, do not recommend substance abuse in place of therapy. Just putting that out there explicitly. Yeah, that is, I think, one of the only times that I've hung up on someone was you being an asshole on the phone. (laughs) (laughs) I hung up on you too around that time. Well, yeah, but like this was me doing that, you know? Um, Yeah. What a rough patch. But I got sober, did a lot of self-care, and reached out to you and apologized. And our relationship has mm. been significantly better since. I actually think our relationship mm. is better on this side of the hard patch than previously. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I, I definitely it... grew as a person. You definitely grew as a person. I know that I've grown as a person a lot. Yeah. I mean, we've matured. We're both, you know, married now. You are a father, which you know, is kind of wild to me. and But also, like, I think you sound like a pretty amazing father. And, you know, I'm really glad for you with that. Um, Yeah. Thank you. It's quite the compliment. Mm -hmm. I mean that. Because Mm -hmm. from my perspective, I'm just doing the best that I can day to day. And... It doesn't always feel like enough, and sometimes it feels like doing my best is too much. Mm. And I think that's just life, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's generally what I'm getting when I talk to parents who are my parents' age or people who are my age and parents is realizing, like, oh, like, there's not really a manual for this. You're learning on the go, and... You think one day you'll have it figured out and you don't and you you do your best and you love your child and you make mistakes, you know. My thoughts on parenting is that it is the most complicated social relationship that you will ever have in your life. And 
it is one of the only relationships that there is such a high risk from the state. Um, mm. About every choice, you know, everything that you teach your child can be scrutinized. <laughs> and making sure that you are teaching your child things in age-appropriate ways and in age-appropriate language and things like that is really difficult because, for instance, this morning my child was asking my wife about crushes and BFFs. Mm. And I heard most of it from our bedroom. I was just kind of laying in bed being lazy. Um and my wife gave an explanation, but I didn't hear all of it. So when I went in for breakfast and I was talking to our child, I asked our child about their perspective on it. <clears throat> and not a lot of the lesson was internalized for that long-term memory. Mm -hmm. And so we got these banners from a friend of ours who is an artist, and they are hand-painted. One says Phileo. And shows two children holding hands. And another one it is... Sorry, that one's yellow. Don't know why that matters, but that's how I think about them. The yellow one is mm -hmm. Phileo. Uh, which is typically translated as um, like friendship or familial love. Uh, mm -hmm. When people get all nerdy about Greek. And then the next one says Eros, and it's red, and mm -hmm. it shows basically one person kissing the neck of another person, but they're not actually mm -hmm. touching in the silhouettes. <laughs> it's all silhouettes. Mm -hmm. And then the third one is an older couple on a bench, and it says Agape, and it's blue. And so I was able to talk to my child that there are different types of loves, different manners of loving, mm -hmm. and... There is such thing as romantic love. And we were talking about romantic love, and I used the term erotic love when talking to my mm. five-year-old. <laughs> mm. And so I have to be careful in how I teach these lessons because I don't want my five-year-old to go to school and start trying to teach the other children what erotic love means. Mm. And... Certainly that would not get me in legal trouble, but it can become awkward. Mm. Like when my five-year-old looked at their kindergarten teacher and said, when do we learn multiplication? And their kindergarten teacher had no answer for that. And said, I don't think we cover that in kindergarten. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm noticing that you're using gender neutral terms. That is to protect the privacy of my child. Okay. What lies between my child's legs and whatever gender is assigned at birth doesn't matter to the internet. Okay. Well, I'll say that what what has stuck out to me in terms of like the way that you have talked about your conversations with your child is giving them words and um, space to talk 
and feel their feelings, like talk about their feelings and feel their feelings. And I just remember thinking, wow, like that's, that's incredible. And, you know, neither of us really had that a whole lot. Um, And I think that's, it's a beautiful thing. Because it's, because it was something that I was not raised with. Um, there apologies from my parents insofar as I remember them. Keep in mind, I have diagnosed memory issues. Mm -hmm. So any portrayal of my parents is just what I know. And I remember from my own organic squishy bits. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas the reality is that internalizing something is very different from the totality of reality. But I never felt that I had license to feel the full range of human emotion. Mm. And apologies from my parents, at least the ones that I can remember, were infrequent. And they always Mm. felt like a way to manipulate me or a way to hurt me. Mm. Um, I remember once that my mother said to me... I'm so sorry. I'm not Mary and I'm not perfect and da 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 da. Mm. And that's not an apology. At least that's not how we define apology in my household. Our household. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm the one being interviewed. <laughs> mm-hmm. But my child knows what an apology is and looks like because that is something that. I want everyone to know how I apologize and why and what I mean by it. And my wife is very, you know, in complete agreement with me. And so for our marriage before our child came along, we practiced that. And so it was much more natural to extend that to another person living with us, even mm-hmm. though that person is, you know, young, developing, you know, still acquiring language, all of those things. To at least go through the ritual, for lack of a better term, was still really important to us. And it's actually Mm. caused issues at school. Mm. So we don't really say I'm... We don't say it's all right in response to someone Mm. saying I'm sorry. We also are very specific in what we're apologizing for. So Mm. an example can be... I'm very sorry that I said something or a paraphrase of something. I did not know information and I am sorry that I hurt you and I'd like for you to forgive me. And in our family, we say, I forgive you because that doesn't mean that it's okay. It doesn't mean that the emotions are invalid. It doesn't mean that You just have to forget it. It means I'm not going to hold this against you, right? This, this can be a starting point for building better communication and a better relationship. Mm. And that is one of the most important things in my life, no matter what community I am interacting with, um, no matter where I am. I want people to know that my goal is healthier, 
more fulfilled relationships in the world. Mm. Even if that means saying I was wrong. Mm. <clears throat> and it's funny, I say that and I can't help but wish that that's how I was raised. Mm. Mm. You know, I think I was raised with a number of those steps, which I'm very grateful for. Um, and I'm very grateful to have had a father who apologized to his kids. Um, one thing that, that I think was missing, something important I think was missing that I'm recognizing now is one, I felt uh, that I had to forgive right then. And I was, instead of, I think the reality of like, sometimes that's not like where you're at or like it's too quick. Um, and I think the other thing was that because we've done this ritual, that that means that it is uh, done and it, I'm not allowed to have feelings about that at a later date. And, you know, I don't think that was the intention but we like we're messy beings. Yeah. And so as an adult, I've been really learning of like, Oh, like I have hurt and anger and all these things that have been sort of built up over time. And I think it's important for me to have space to not be forgiving, you know, not, not long-term, yeah. not saying that's forever, but like saying this is a choice and also that, like, you know, given that we, we live in this this world that has a lot of problems, like, even when you do forgive someone, like, forgiving is a um, is a moment-by-moment, minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour, day-by-day thing. It's not something that is sort of one and done a lot of the time. Like, I think it is important to, like, have that moment, but, like, those feelings are still going to come up, and you're, the relationship is still still has that pain even though um, things might be mended in some way like there's still a scar right that's left yeah. behind when you think of forgiveness do you think of let me back up when I think of forgiveness it also includes the requirement on both the person asking for forgiveness and the person forgiving to grow in their empathy mm. as well as for healthy boundaries to be established mm. and that second one is the harder part mm. for instance you know i've had to physically move my child out of dangerous situations right you're getting mm. too close you know this has never actually happened, but an example would be if my child was going towards an outlet with a fork, mm. <laughs> you know, and so you pick them up and due to the differences in size and muscle 
it is very easy to grip too hard on a child and to hurt them. You might not mm. bruise, you might not whatever, but my child is allowed to emotionally respond to me hurting them. Mm. That's not inappropriate in any sense of the, the matter. And justifying it with, but I was getting you out of danger, doesn't change the emotional reaction of my parent, who I know who loves me, just physically hurt me. Mm. And in circumstances like that, I still ask for forgiveness. I still mm. apologize. I still try and set those boundaries. And I still and try to make a future plan. That's how we, we use the term mm. that we use with our child. And it's, you know, so what is your, your future plan? What are you going to do to prevent this hurt from happening again? <clears throat> and so... My child is incredibly sensitive to anyone speaking with a very stern voice. Mm. Um, it's not something that my child's accustomed to, which is good and bad. <laughs> mm. So there are times where in chastisement, my child will say, but you were yelling at me. It's like, no, I never raised my voice. I didn't yell at you. But I understand how the seriousness of my voice impacted you emotionally right mm -hmm. and being sensitive to sensory triggers right if you mm -hmm. think of emotion as a sense which i think it is it's it's one of the ways that we know how to interact with the world just like the traditional five senses mm -hmm. um when you think of emotion as a sense it is very easy to be the emotional equivalent of too loud or the emotional equivalent of too bright or you know uh i think of it more like a strobe light it can actually be very disorienting mm -hmm. um and we are responsible for each other and i am responsible for, responsible for my child's emotions and emotional development so i can say i am sorry that the seriousness of my voice of my tone hurt you I was attempting to communicate how serious it was. What mm -hmm. is a better way that I can do that? And he, my child has had some great ideas on that front, mm. <laughs> you know, and it, it can actually be as simple as let's not have these types of conversation in the kitchen where everything echoes. Mm. Because my child has sensory awareness Everybody has a limit. I don't know mm -hmm. anything about autism or the autism spectrum from a professional sense. My child has never been diagnosed or anything like that. But being aware from interacting with my friends who have children who have been diagnosed, my friends who have been diagnosed, my own mm -hmm. ADHD and sensory issues, mm -hmm. being sensitive to that lets me build an environment where communication wins not sensory overload or emotionally mm. sensory sensory overload and that is one of the many things that you juggle as a parent and it's difficult it's so fucking difficult <laughs> mm. and that's okay life is difficult people social interactions are difficult it's okay to put the work in to make them beautiful and great and glorious but that's a lot of work. Hmm. 
Yeah. Now I I love all of that. I I am going to move on to the okay. the next question, but I um I have so many thoughts and feelings about that. So the second question, what you were asking about earlier is I asked people to introduce themselves. Um, but yeah, would you, how would you introduce yourself in a way that, that you would like to, or in a way where you're getting across the information that you want people to know about you? I introduce myself differently in different contexts. So mm. I'm Daniel. That's how I prefer to be addressed. I use he, him pronouns, which I include when I don't know the audience or in business settings or when I am interfacing with the LGBTQIA plus community, because including that is a way, it's a way for people to not have to assume. Mm. And I have a lot of friends who are hurt by the assumptions that are made about things like pronouns. So I say that when I'm interacting with the LGBTQIA plus community, I will specify that I am cis. I was born in the body that I identify with. And I don't remember all the terminology for mm -hmm. the complicated nature of that subject, but I mm -hmm. will say I'm cis. And I am in a heteronormative monogamous relationship that my position, like, for instance, my position on the Kensington scale doesn't really matter to me because the monogamy outs that part of my identity. It, it just, it's not something I think about. It's not something that I'm conflicted in. I'm just me. And I have chosen to interact with the world as me. And I'm grateful that I don't have to explain that in most contexts. Mm. Could you explain the Kensing scale for our listeners? The Kensing scale is, I think it's been around since the 70s. It's old. It is I old. know that. And it has problems. But I find it useful for how to talk about my sexual orientation. So if we imagine something is pure heterosexual on one side of the scale and pure homosexual on the other the Ken because that's those were the terms that the Kensing scale originally used mm -hmm. most people don't fit on a polar scale like that like a binary there's some flexibility in between so if I was thinking about my own sexuality with what I know now 20 years ago I'd probably be bi, but mm -hmm. I don't care. I'm not interested in sexual activity with other men. Not interested. That That is not part of my sexuality. Mm. But there are a lot of social norms about the relationships between men that I reject wholeheartedly. Mm. I cuddle with my male friends and I have no problem with it. I can compliment them on their looks even in a sexual way, and be fine with it. Mm. But I prefer my wife. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't, like, I sexual attraction is weird because the, it's just attraction. It's part of that emotional interaction with the world, in my opinion. Mm. 
I know that that is not everyone's experience. And so I do want to leave that open. Like I'm not saying sexuality is an emotion. That is not the equivocation that is happening Mm. here. (laughs) But, Mm. you know, it is part of our brain, I guess, sometimes brain. (laughs) It Mm. is part of our way to interact with the world. And the way in which I interact with the world is typically defined as straight. But there are a lot of things that I do and that I'm comfortable with that are not a part of a patriarchal, patriarchal, stupid way of interacting (laughs) with the world (laughs) you know i have no problem cuddling with a friend i have no problem giving hugs to anyone i have no problem holding hands with another man i've lived in in visited cultures where that's typical for friends to just hold hands Mm -hmm. and so these outward signs of physical affection don't matter to me i don't care what people call them because those people who care about them are usually idiots or bigots hmm. or people who find those labels important which isn't always yeah i didn't think about that because i've never experienced that hmm. the only people who've ever had an issue with how i interact with my male friends or with my friends in general non-binary male female the only people who've ever had an issue with that are people who are coming from a false idea of what manliness is and a false idea of what sexuality is. Hmm. I've never experienced somebody who cared about those labels critiquing my behavior. Hmm. Right. That makes sense. But I understand that for some people in their behavior, those labels really do matter because it gives them a place. Mm -hmm. And I am not against giving people a place, if that makes sense. Uh, I'm just going to add in here that, like, with you talking about the Kensing scale and sexuality and, you know, where, where are you on that is I remember after I came out, at some point after that, you called me and were like, Eden, so I was attracted to you, and now <laughs> you're, a, you know, and you're a man. So, like, I'm not sure where that leaves me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I still don't have an answer for that, which is okay. Because you know? let's put it in the crassest of terms. If you are comfortable with that, Go what's gonna it. happen between us? We are both. I am in a happy monogamous relationship. My understanding of your relationship is a happy monogamous relationship. <laughs> you know? Like, why the fuck does it matter? Right. And and that's the thing that the LGBTQIA plus community has taught me, is if it doesn't matter, just let it go. Mm. Let people have space for the things that matter to them. And if it doesn't matter to you, move on. Mm. And I've been significantly happier living in a place of not confusion, but just openness, just um, letting things be. Um, Sometimes it's inconsistent to other ideas that I hold, but being hyper definitional about things i think has also gotten into us gotten us into a position where 
people want to you weaponize those definitions mm-hmm. um the community that i can think of most readily is the turf community the trans exclusionary radical feminist community wants to define woman in such a way to eliminate the the experiences of an entire portion of the population and then weaponize it against them hmm. why waste your time on such a narrow definition you know, and I understand that for social reasons, it matters in certain contexts, but doesn't matter in most of mine. Hmm. Yeah. And so I, I try and care about the things that matter to the relationships that I have. So if it is important to a friend or an acquaintance or a stranger, I will honor that importance. But it doesn't have to challenge who I I am, it just might add more vocabulary. One of the communities that I'm in has tremendously helped me understand why trans rights matter outside of the the trans community and the LGBT community. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when it comes to, like from my perspective, it's an exercise in empathy, right? Like, I will never grow as a person until I can try to empathize with the other. Yeah. Whereas it's more than that now. And I really appreciate it. It's deepened my relationship Mm. with my friends who are a part of the trans community, either because they're trans or because somebody very close to them is trans. So Mm. it's really changed the way in which I interact with the world. And I'm really happy for that. Like, we have a... If you, you know, I don't know how much you're on Discord, but you, we have a bot set up yeah. where exclamation mark and then a word is like a command that the bot will paste in there. Mm-hmm. And one of them is exclamation mark guys. And it just reminds the person that not everybody hears a guy, that guy is not the default. Mm-hmm. And that there are people who get overlooked when that is how you communicate with the world. And at first, I just didn't use that in that community. And now anytime I hear someone like address a group of people as guys, I'm like, you can do better. <laughs> I am so bad at it. I'm it's okay. so bad at it myself. Like, here's the thing. Yeah. I am not a trans person. I am not going to say that that is what the trans community needs because it's not my community if i'm ever interacting in that space it's always as a guest but i am a father i am a community member i'm now a community leader somehow that happened (laughs) and in that community that is the standard that we hold to so i'm not going to reach out to like youtube content creators that i really like who are avidly pro queer rights i i I don't want to narrow it down to like just trans just Mm -hmm. like all of lgbtqia plus i'm never gonna reach out to them and be like you said guys you're a shit bag (laughs) you know (laughs) but what stands out to me is that is a way in which language can be adapted to be more inclusive and that's Mm -hmm. important to me Because as a guest in those spaces, 
I would rather default to the most inclusive, not in like a preachy way. Does that make sense? Like, I'm not going to yeah. jump on somebody and be like, you're a horrible person for using guys. I've noticed that my exception of the word y'all is tied with that and a podcast that's also very pro-queer. Yeah, y'all is a y'all or, or yin or like whatever those terms are, but y'all is the one I'm most familiar with. Is It's, it's a very useful one. It and is. You know, I'm not, I don't sound like I'm from the South. And so it, um, it sounds a little wrong coming out of my mouth, but. Uh, I've lived here. I've lived in the South longer than I've lived anywhere else. So maybe I should stop trying to reject some of the mannerisms and speech that I find that I found abhorrent because I didn't like the South. Hmm. Right. And, and it, it's been a learning journey for me. I, there's a lot of things that I really, really appreciate about the South. At the same time, the area of the South that I live in is getting more bigoted, more extremist, more problematic every day. Yeah. And it's just a weird... I don't know. It's weird. And that's okay. Hmm. <clears throat> well, I'll, uh, I'll move on to the sort of the the meaty question the main question which is how have your you know how have your experiences and or sort of identities affected your relationship with your body um that's a big question mm -hmm. um the first relationship that i think of with my body content warning discussion mm -hmm. of suicide suicidality and yeah i'll do all of that ideation yeah. yeah um so i was sexually abused as a small child and not having a place for those emotions led to some really really fucked up internalization so most of my life i've i've been I've had ideation, at least, and several attempts along the way. And on a most fundamental level, I think that is the most harmful relationship to my body that I've ever had. Yeah, I remember you talking about, you know, at least one attempt when you were pretty young. My first attempt, I, attempt, I was 10 years old. Um... And I, in the circumstances, I was able to hide it from my family. And so it made other attempts easier. But it also instilled in me this idea, idea that if I was going to attempt again, it would either have to be incredibly successful or unsuccessful in a way that I could hide it. Mm. Which was a very dangerous mindset to be in. Yeah. And I've never really loved my body because it was the thing that with with my ideation did come occasional self-harm. Mm -hmm. And 
the self-harm at the time helped me ground myself back into my body but most of the my life I've been dissociative enough that I think of myself more as a brain piloting a meat suit than mm. a whole person. And so the struggle that I'm still going through in many ways is connecting those two, being allowed to enjoy my body. Mm. Mm. I find myself like the language of meat suit like I just cringe you know when I hear it but I, I think I cringe because that is so familiar to me right the idea of being a mind floating around I remember there was this picture of my brother once and he's wearing this dark shirt I think it's it might even be like a turtleneck okay. um, and the background is dark and so it looks like it's he's just a floating head. And that's the way that I I feel that I've felt a lot of the time and it's been a like it's just such a work in progress for me to connect with the other parts of my body. A large portion of my life my my relationships have been digital in nature, right? Email mm -hmm. as spoken about earlier or mm -hmm. Um, different social media platforms and communication platforms, as well as online gaming, that it becomes easy to dissociate people from who they are as a full entity, as a you know, in an embodied person, to be a, an online avatar or just their voice on voice chat or a screen name. And there are, there's a lot of people in my life who refer to me by my screen name. Mm. And I'm okay with that. But the dissociation to see yourself as those things, for me, has always been really easy. Um, yeah. You know, on the internet, nobody knows that you're a dog. <clears throat> you know? <laughs> and so it's complicated to have body image issues and to so easily step out of thinking about your body, right? Mm. I've never been really into sports and physical activity because I like the things that my brain can do so much. I like thinking. I like discussing. I like reading and, and writing and tech stuff and <laughs> mm. all of these things to the point where none of those air quotes require a body is, mm. is how I often think about it. And what that does is that leaves a huge portion of my personhood behind. Mm. Yeah. You know, what this makes me think of is, is Christianity and, and the fact that, you know, quite a lot of the time there's been problems of like dualism within Christian yeah. belief. I was wondering if you could talk about your journey with Christianity and what, like how that has affected your relationship with your body. Yeah. Um, so brief timeline. I was <laughs> 14 years old and I went to a Pentecostal church. I really wanted to go back and due to some things that my parents told me, I might, I was worried that I wouldn't be allowed to. 
Hmm. Not because of the church or anything, just more of being time poor and not easily having a way to and from church that didn't cost a lot of commute time because there's no public transit in the U.S. Hmm. But I joined that church, very quickly became active in what they called leadership, and joined a cult that was affiliated with this church. Hmm. Lived in rural Ohio for a year as a part of a cult. Um, dictated how I was allowed to think about things. Dictated what relationships I was allowed to have and value. Dictated how I dressed and styled hmm. my hair. <laughs> and then I went really? to... Yeah. I cut my long hair because pastors were openly mocking me for it and trying to make me feel bad. Mm. <clears throat> like I said, cults, they attract the greatest of people. <laughs> so I went to a private Christian school. I studied theology. Um, and all of these people who encouraged me to go to college just fucking abandoned me, both emotionally mm. and socially. And I realized that I had a lot of religious trauma as I was studying religion. Mm -hmm. I ended up really enjoying the way in which a certain professor taught. And he, he had a degree and specialty in historical theology. So he tried to teach doctrine from this is what we have in the very early church and then just kind of follow a thread all the way to today. And it really grounded my beliefs in a historical context, right? Um, even if somebody held all of my same beliefs, but they were 300 years ago, it would be fun functionally a different belief because the historical context that that person finds themselves in is different from mine. And that's complicated, but fun because people are weird and complicated and mm -hmm. that complexity I think should be celebrated. Uh, I was a junior in college and I visited a local Orthodox church, uh, Eastern Orthodox Christianity. And it was a mission parish. What's that? What that means is that it is not like a fully functioning self-sufficient parish. We didn't have a priest. We had a deacon at the time who later became the priest. Um, we still don't own a building. We barely pay our priest. Like It's very much a getting going situation. Mm. And I went there to argue with the man who became my godfather <laughs> about Berkeley idealism. Um, that's for all the philosophy nerds out there. Um, <laughs> and what I was met with was the most offensive thing that I could ever experience in my life. And that was love and letting the things that didn't matter go. Hmm. Um, there was almost a refusal to just debate shit. Right. And it, hmm. it didn't even like devolve into like an epistemological debate. Like, oh, well, how can we know if that's how things work? It was just a... I don't know. That's just not how I think about it for my life. This is what this is what we believe. This mm. is what the Orthodox Church teaches from these people. This is what the scriptures say. This is how we pray. Mm. Uh, yeah, I don't know. And that willingness to be ignorant 
was one of the most beautiful things I ever interacted with in my life. And I'm still, I still consider myself, you know, an Orthodox Christian. I'm still in good standing with the church. I attend semi-frequently. COVID has been shitty. (laughs) Hmm. And so being time poor and having some anxieties about the health of people around me have led to me attending less frequently, but it has nothing to do with the Orthodox Church itself. And I still have a great relationship with the people at my parish, and I'm mm. grateful for that. Mm. You know, I forgot the original question in the, the history. I was about to say, you have... <laughs> uh, I mean, you, you told the story about you connecting with Christianity and then the Orthodox Church, but you missed the crucial part about how it relates to your body. You, you just took the, like, mind... Mind in a meat suit. <laughs> yeah. It's also just a bit of ADHD in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I just, I noticed this. I know that I noticed this happening in like a few interviews. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, orthodoxy values the human body in prayer. We light candles. We light incense and burn incense. There are appointed times in different services for the deacon or the priest to carry a sensor around and to sense the icons of saints, the, the people, uh, it literally just says deacon senses the, the people in the service book. Mm. We stand in prayer. We bow in prayer. We physically cross ourselves. We prostrate, prostate, pr- prostrate. <laughs> no, no, no. Prostrate, not prostate. <laughs> Slight difference. Slight difference. Um, you know, we we bonk our foreheads against the floor sometimes to pray. <laughs> <laughs> um, and sometimes we'll pray and touch the floor. And the community of Orthodox that I am a part of historically used to be a part of the Russian church. And so a lot of the mannerisms and the practices of the Russian church are the norm in our community. There are two other like branches, so to speak, of local practice. One is Greek and one is mm-hmm. um, Arab. Some people will say Egyptian, but that doesn't really cover like Syrian Orthodox and stuff like that. Mm. But culturally, these three branches, typically because differences in language, typically did things in ways that were similar. And valuing the body in all three of these is the norm. So we eat together, we sing together, we move our bodies together, we hug. Our parish is in the American South, so hugging is a little bit more common in our community. But all of these things are important, and it is not something that just happens around you that you participate in it is something that is actively taught and preached about about your body as a place of prayer because you can't really pray without your body Mm. at least in no way that we can currently experience Mm. and so that has been incredibly helpful for me to see myself as a full person and not just a mind with the inconvenient requirement of physicality Mm. and 
I'm still internalizing that. I think everybody... Let me back up. I have no idea if everybody experiences this, but the people that I speak to do. And it's remembering that... I mean, we have... There's there's this fool for Christ, and I can never remember his name, who would literally pick up little pebbles and throw them over the iconostas at his priest while he was, like, doing the Eucharist stuff, the, like, most important part of the service. This is a saint who would literally throw rocks at his priest <laughs> during service. Um, because Russians are special. You know, and <laughs> another fool for Christ is Saint Zhenya who is, I think she's from St. Petersburg. I'd have to double check. Her husband died. He was a, mil I, Russia had a caste system. She was aristocracy. She married down into the military caste. Her husband was a general and just like died, I like really young. And so she dressed as him, went around begging alms as Peter and slept on top of his grave in cold ass Russia for the rest of her life, which was like 50 something years. And when her family sued her to take possession of her estate, she goes to the judge and is like, I'm not crazy. This is just me being me. <laughs> so mm. what if a bunch of homeless people live on a giant manor? Maybe that's how it should be. <laughs> so she was a proper holy fool. Yeah. 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 So they're both holy fool or fool for Christ are the terms. And both of them were considered fools for Christ. She was not um, in the, the charges that her family leveled against her were insanity for, from uh, widowhood, which speaks mm. to the patriarchal nature of how we view women and stuff like that. But like, she's, she Everybody knew her real name. Everybody knew that she was dressing as a man because her husband refused to go to church and refused to do the things that would be considered holy. And her perspective was, well, if he can't do it anymore, I can do it for him. And we've mm -hmm. elevated this woman as a saint. We don't talk about her husband. I have no idea if it was efficacious. And I don't think... That was the motivi motiv motivating factor for her, based on what I've read of her life and her teaching. She went to different bakeries at the end of the day, and they would give her the stale bread, and she would go to places where the homeless and unhoused lived to distribute this. She would go to orphans and do this thing as a way to critique the injustice in the world. And she was very, very clear about her views on the Russian hierarchy, the caste system, and the people that those things ignored. Mm. And if I can't, I mean, she is a wonderful person and showed us a way to participate in life with a body and that mm. for her was sleeping on the grave in snowstorms and blizzards and things like that of her late husband risking her own life out of a some sense of devotion that i do not understand mm. do i think those things are okay maybe not <laughs> but mm. that's not my call to make those are her decisions 
and I'm not making the same decisions because I am not her. Hmm. Yeah, I think this is something that's really beautiful about liturgical traditions when, I guess, at their best. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, of course, there, there can be cases where it becomes uh, nominal or, or corrupt, of course, like the Russian Orthodox Church in Russia itself and in, you know, parts of it in Ukraine too. The one that's actively blessing the invasion of Ukraine? Yeah. 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 They, you know, because like during Soviet times, there like was a lot of corruption that came in. But like, you know, I'm sure that there are places in Russia and Ukraine where it is vibrant and beautiful and and soulful um, or bodyful, I guess. Uh, <laughs> or both. Or both. You know, all, all, all of the above. Um, human. Human, you know. So that there's a way that it can become rote and that it be- can become, you know, disconnected from the body. Yeah. But when I see these things done well in, you know, Places that do this are like, you know, the Catholic Church, the Anglican or the Episcopal Church, sometimes the Lutheran Church and, and the Orthodox Church. I, I might be missing others, but, you know, I used to go to a liturgical community, which I, um, I'm i not part of anymore. But I what I loved the most was that physical connection. And it's something I really enjoyed when I visited your church as well for your wedding and for your child's baptism. I I do not think that you are reading Christ's words very carefully if you think that a hierarchy can exist without critique or comment. Even Christ comments on his relationship to the Father. And there is no hierarchy, especially a hierarchy of humans, that is free from the afflictions, the <clears throat> mistakes, and the intentional harms of humanity. Mm. And so, absolutely, I am well aware of corruption in the Orthodox Church. It's my, air quote, extended community, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term. I know things about Orthodox persons and Orthodox hierarchy that I wish I didn't. I wish weren't true. Mm. At the same time, the you mentioned the roteness of liturgical worship. And in times where my ideation was particularly bad, that roteness helped. Mm-hmm. Where just being in church and saying the words and singing the songs and mm-hmm. doing the things... The way in which I describe it is there are times in this river of life where you can't swim. Mm. And what my experience of the church offers me is the ability to just pick my legs up and float and be carried. Mm. Because orthodoxy has, in my opinion, a very unique view of religion as community. Mm. Other religions that I've experienced that from the outside in are certain sects of Islam and certain sects of Hinduism. I can't speak to those religions in whole or their histor- history or theology. That's, it's not 
something that I consider myself well-versed in, but I also see it from my one of my friends is Wicca. And her coven is like that too. Very, very communally focused. And I think that a lot of the world is lonelier than it has ever been before. Mm. Even in religious practice. And I think that the antidote or the salve for that loneliness is community. Mm-hmm. And we were speaking earlier about my friend explaining his experiences of drag shows. Mm. And that was the thing that he brought up was local community, local representation, local people that as a heartbroken, hurt teenager, he had people who were adults who could talk about adult things with him Mm. in age appropriate ways. that let him find answers to his own questions on his terms. And that is so incredibly important. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is what healthy community offers. And I don't know if anywhere in history has ever existed a truly healthy community in full because people have their own biases, their own difficulties, their Mm -hmm. own failures of empathy, myself included. And those get brought into the community too. And bringing those into the community, sometimes they deserve space and sometimes they don't, period. And the when making that decision is decided by the community. And that's really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. And so my friend is not religious. He was hurt deeply by religion. But he is respectful of religious people so long as they're not bigoted and that's his like big so long as Hmm. and i don't know if that is a failure of theology a failure of practice or a failure of community my personal opinion is that it is a failure of community you are failing to empathize with other human beings and their experiences and the way in which they've internalized those experiences And it's messy. Mm. Humans are messy. Period. You know, I I spoke very positively about Islam and Hinduism, and I've also had some very negative experiences there. I speak very positively of orthodoxy. I have had very negative experiences there. Mm. That is community. I speak very positively of my wife. It doesn't mean that we haven't hurt each other. It means mm-hmm. that we've asked for forgiveness, set you know, healthy boundaries, and attempted to build a better relationship from there. And you know, when I said that earlier, like this is what I was thinking of was community, because healthy boundaries is the only way to build a healthy community. Yeah, I remember talking to my therapist, you know, as I was looking for a new church and I said, ah, I'm just worried that it's going to suck. And he said, it is going to suck. Like (laughs) in some way, like this is, this is a, churches are made of communities. They're, they're made of people. They're made of people who, you know, there's going to be some type of problem at some point. 
it sort of you sort of have to like balance out like what types of problems or like what are the boundaries around those problems like how do people deal with problems yeah would would it be appropriate to say that one of the things that you're looking for in a religious community is respect for your boundaries mm, yeah um i mean i i I, I have found a church community now, which is great. And that is something that I found was important of allowing me, like there wasn't a defensiveness to when I brought up things that I might disagree about or that I might have concerns about. You know, there was just space to have that. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I have learned from friends who interact with the world in ways different from how I do. Sometimes that is with gender. Sometimes that's with gender identity or sexual identity is that interfacing with ideas that are either contrary or different from yours is not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Existing in a world where you are always engaging with those topics can be incredibly damaging. Mm -hmm. You you need time to rest. You need time to be around like-minded people as well. And I think the difficulty, especially in religious communities, is it is easy to build a, a religious community where not interacting with ideas that are contrary to your own becomes a defining part of the community and my time in a cult flat out like that's where i experienced that the most mm. where anything other is to use lack of a better term it's heterodox it's it's an incorrect belief mm. and it becomes a way to define in groups and out groups as well as a way to belittle outgroups. Mm. <clears throat> so I don't have an answer. I am grateful that I am not a priest mm. uh, or any sort of official teacher on orthodoxy. I'm not. I am sharing my experiences and my understandings to the best of my complicated life. Mm. And because of that, I have a little bit more freedom to say things like, there are Orthodox communities that see everybody who's not Orthodox as other. Mm -hmm. Not only other, but other and lesser. It is called Orthodox, after all. <laughs> we didn't pick the name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but in, in defining that as a way of being as a community is problematic to the orthodox faith itself as defined throughout the history you know, throughout our own history mm. one of my friend's grandfathers marched with martin luther king jr as an orthodox priest mm. he was a loving greek man who understood that humans are human and Papu is a term of endearment in the Greek church and <laughs> um, Greek culture, from my understanding. So I've always referred to him as Papu. And that was how Papu interacted with the world. 
and I've never heard, I mean, I've heard negative stories and things like Mm -hmm. that. He wasn't a perfect man, but that understanding is something that I hope for all Orthodox Christians. But I also know of situations where Orthodox Christians supported the white supremacist view of the world at the time as well. To the point where not long after Dr. King's assassination, the Orthodox Church held a council on whether or not you had to be a certain ethnicity to be Orthodox Mm. and condemned it as a heresy. And that sort of conversation still happens within Orthodoxy. Are you Greek enough to be Orthodox? Are you Russian enough? Are you Serbian enough? Are you whatever? Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people who view their religious identity and their ethnic identity as inseparable. Mm -hmm. And so because my body is one with different phenotypes and a different Mm -hmm. historical geographic location, there are people who see my faith as less. And those people are wrong. And I'm more than happy to tell them. (laughs) And it's not, that is part of interfacing with people who have different beliefs. And I think that my understanding of what orthodoxy is requires that. You can't just accept everything, but you also can't just reject everything. I do think that understanding that the way in which my Serbian friends interact with the Orthodox Church and its history and its faith is very uniquely situated in history. You know, I have a friend who regularly visits a monastery that Albanians constantly bomb. Mm. This is a part of his experience of his own religion. And I have Albanian friends who are Orthodox who talk about other ethnicities and, and cultures and things like that. And it just... I've never experienced that. I've never experienced a country at war on my home soil. I've never experienced stochastic terrorism like that. And I think that for me to say that somebody shouldn't internalize that would be me stepping way over the line on honoring somebody's individual experiences. Mm. At the same time, I need to listen to people who have experienced stochastic terrorism and listen to their experiences, which is why I interact so much with my gay friends, my trans friends, things like that, because I don't know a community that is experiencing stochastic terrorism in my geographic region Mm -hmm. nearly as much. And that internalization looks different for different people. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I'm listening to a book called Exclusion and Embrace right now. Um which I just, I recommend to you because it, I mean, given the title, it talks a lot about that and, and Christianity, like in, in um, theology and uh, the problems of specifically the author is Croatian and talks about, you know, of course the conflict between Serbians uh, and and Croats and how or Croatians. I'm actually not sure which one it is, but um, I've heard the term Croats as well, and I don't I don't know. But in any case, talks about that and you know 
of course the problem you know the serbs were you know attempting to like eradicate um croatians but then also like the deep deep hatred of serbians by croatians later and anyway like it, it's talks a lot about all of that stuff and yeah right now actually i'm getting this image of like the idea of like this this body that is broken and like splintered off you know as people attack each other i mean yeah genetically speaking the differences between people's bodies is so minor that focusing on those differences really bothers me likewise i am anti-nationalist if that makes sense in many ways mm -hmm. politically because i think that <sighs> i live in appalachia and not all appalachians are the same not all southerners are the same and Appalachians and Southerners do have different cultural histories. That being said, they share a lot of cultural history as well. Mm. And situating people, humans, real humans with real bodies and thoughts and beliefs and feelings in history is incredibly difficult to do. Because I know people who have been fed anti-union propaganda their entire life. Mm and anti-government propaganda as an anti-regulation propaganda their entire life <clears throat> and pointing out that workers rights matter and regulation is always a good thing even if it's bad regulation because regulation can be amended and adjusted for reality and the needs of the people mm. is difficult it is a long and difficult discussion because it is, it is part of, in many places, how people would identify Appalachian identity. Mm. And not being born here actually separates me from that, despite having lived in Appalachia for more of my life than anywhere else. Mm. And it's complicated, you know? And when you bring up things like, most of Ohio is populated with Kentuckians. They look at you like you're, you've got three heads, right? Like they look at you like you are completely something else. And then you point out, yeah, the steel, the steel mills would send buses to the Appalachians, pay men to get onto the, the bus and say, if you work for us for three weeks, we'll buy you a house and move your family up here yeah. and give you more cash because they were hurting for workers so badly. And so you get this weird connection and it's like, yeah, Ohio was in the Union during the Civil War. That does not mean that Ohio and huge pockets of it aren't Appalachian in culture. Mm -hmm. But how long, how long are you away from big trees and blue mountains and misty, foggy mornings and living in cornfields and flat land until you, you view yourself differently? And that's not an answer I can give you because it's different for each person. Mm. And I think the difficulty for modern scholars is where do you say that this place's culture has diverged enough from its source to say that it is a new thing? Mm. 
And I don't have those answers. But the way in which you view your own culture affects your body. Mm. It is like all the way down to traditional meals, traditional activities. We will never be rid of school-sponsored football in the Appalachians. I do not see a way. Mm. No matter how dangerous of a sport it is, was, has become, will become, whatever. That is one of the main money makers for every high school here. Mm. There are entire towns where your identity for most of your life is which high school did you graduate from and which side of the bleachers do you sit on when you're rooting at a game? Mm. And that translates up into college football and into professional football. And I don't, like I stated earlier, I've never really been interested in sports. I'm not a part of this fandom. I don't know what a good football play looks like in the moment. Someone has to explain it to me. And I internalize that differently from the people who their idea of a good time on Thanksgiving is going out and throwing a football after a huge meal. And... This is a cultural thing that affects bodies and affects the way we think about them. I'm so as you were talking, I was just thinking about how I grew up hearing like when I was messy because I, I'm, I'm a pretty messy person. I was um, I heard the term a slur about white Appalachians um, that I that I grew up with and I didn't recognize that until I was older and you know that comes from like you know family history and I think that there was a lot of like lack of awareness even there and how how we put people in categories as as other as as not worthwhile or, or to to avoid or especially to avoid being like right yeah when it comes to community, there are also steps that have to be taken to protect a community. One of the communities that I am in, and I'm considered a leader of, does not entertain the idea that reproductive rights and women's rights are not human rights. It is a space that we do not allow people to argue about. If you wish to discuss it, take it to direct messages. It is not a public forum discussion. We are abjectly pro-reproductive rights. Mm. We are also abjectly anti-cryptocurrency and any derivative of that pyramid scheme. Mm. And we will openly mock those things. But one of the things that we do say is the people who are losing money are getting scammed too. Mm. Right? Just because you fell for a Ponzi scheme does not mean that you are not a victim. And these sorts of differences and in, in the way in which we handle the discussions of these things are a way that we protect our community. There are people who are significantly harmed in this international community by a lack of rights and a lack of of public service, a lack of social support, things like that. Mm. And those are decisions that we made to protect the community that we are growing. And yeah, it's a limit of free speech. It's a limit on what ideas are allowed to be discussed publicly. 
those are the decisions that we've made. But one of the ways that our community interfaces with that is these are the things that we have decided we don't discuss publicly. You are welcome to have the meta conversation, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You are allowed to talk about why are these things not discussed publicly. Mm -hmm. Even though the content of those discussions, right, the, the non-meta conversation, for lack of a better term, mm -hmm. isn't allowed. <clears throat> and this is one of our the things that we consider that we need to be transparent about. Mm -hmm. Because if you join this community and you think a certain way, you're welcome to be a part of this community, but you have to keep those thoughts to yourself. And it was in a, it, it is a, an explicit desire so that nobody feels unwelcome in our community. And because of that, I have the pleasure of interacting with people from places in the world that I've never been to with ideas that I've never heard of, uh, sometimes in languages that I don't speak mm -hmm. and can't read. And it becomes a fuller community. You know, I've been able to speak to, you know, with members of this community about geopolitics in their country that are often divided on religious lines or ethnic lines. And we can privately have those discussions for me to better understand the news cycle coming out of those places. Because just because it's being reported in, I don't know, an American newspaper doesn't mm. mean that that is the full picture. Mm. At the same time, just because it's being presented in an American newspaper doesn't mean that it's not the full picture. <laughs> but mm. I can talk to people about their perspective and experiences. Sometimes that is not an appropriate public conversation. Mm. And because of that, I don't know if I can say that I believe in free speech fully because I think that there is a paradox of free speech. Mm -hmm. Hate speech is not welcome in our, in our community. Likewise, it is a limit on what ideas are safe for the community, so to speak. Um, because of that paradox. And so when talking about, especially slurs based on race, identity of any sort, there is the community internalizes those sometimes, mm. and it becomes a word that is safe for the community to use, mm. despite it being a slur when used from outside the community. Mm. Um, but there is also a rejection of the way in which language is used to hurt people. Hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know everybody in the space. My understanding is the word queer has become a term like that. When it was originally used, it was intended as a slur. Mm -hmm. And some people have used it as a way to identify people of a similar mindset. And when they use it with each other, it is not a slur. Mm -hmm. And it is even in the, you know, LGBTQIA plus acronym. I don't know what that means. I have no idea how to internalize that. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, Outgroups do help define in-groups. 
and I hate it, but it's the reality. I do not want my child to be a drug addict or an alcoholic. Mm. And these are labels for groups of people with difficulties. Mm. But I can still talk to my child about and I cannot remember how the DSM-5 defines it. Ad- mm. Addiction disorder or whatever? Um, substance use disorder. Substance use disorder. They tend not to list food when we... Or we, people typically don't think of food when they list substance use disorders. Um, so that is not technically a substance use disorder. Little nerd thing okay. here. Um, there are things Yay, called things. Um, process disorders. Uh, process addictions, I guess process addiction so um i'm in a you know sexual recovery that is a process addiction gambling is a process addiction i I believe food would be under that as well okay um although that's actually probably just under eating disorders in a dsm like i don't actually remember if this is in the dsm but like the way it's talked about there there's eating disorders there's substance use disorders and there's process addictions well, I know a lot of people who comfort eat, and it does not affect their health. Mm-hmm. I myself, when I comfort eat, it is part of the ADHD and depression symptom symptoms of, uh, I think it's called boom and bust eating, mm. where you don't eat anything all day, and then you, you sit down and you eat 4,000 calories worth of food and gorge yourself and are unhealthy. And I have struggled with that mm. for sections of my life. I'm hopefully coming out of one of those sections, but I, the funny thing is, is it feels the same as when I was drinking all the time or smoking or whatever. It's an addiction to how you feel as a body in certain circumstances. And I love good food. And when I'm in that boom and bust cycle, I don't care if it's good food. Yeah. It's just food. And that becomes the difficulty. And there are slurs for any in-group or out-group. And I think being sensitive with how we speak to other people, like I brought up earlier with the Kensing scale, the terms that Dr. Kensing Mm. used was homosexual and heterosexual and made that a line graph so to speak instead of a binary category i don't know what terms i would change that to but i know that those terms are weaponized against people every day Mm -hmm. as a way to define them as other and lesser Mm -hmm. and so you know if anybody is is hurt by my use of those terms i hope that they forgive me I did not mean them in a in a hurtful way, but in a historical attempt mm-hmm. at scientific approach to it. And that's it. Does, still doesn't capture the whole picture. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with non-binary people? The Kensing scale cannot answer that. How do you deal with polyamorous people? Can't handle that. You know, it it doesn't. It's still coming from a place of a binary, and that's difficult. Mm. Mm. If you know an updated way to discuss those things, please let me know. I'm always looking to learn. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I 
because I mean, it, that's it's being done in a clinical way. And so <clears throat> the language, I just don't really, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be sure. I know for me, when I hear the word homosexual, automatically what I think of is non-affirming churches um, and, and talking about homose- the, the issue of homosexuality, you know, but I recognize that there are some people that, you know, either are older. And so like that, that is the term that they would use, like people in, you know, what I would call the the queer community who might be fine with that. Um, And then, of course, other people who just like, that's just the term that they know. Um, I think a lot has to do with the way that you're saying something. I know... Just because it's clinical doesn't mean it's right. No, no. Because clinicians are humans, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I just don't know what... Yeah. I would use if you that. if you come across it, let me know. Yeah, I know that the Kensing scale has had a lot of very valid critiques. Mm-hmm. Um, it is useful for me because I guess I'm cis heteronormative. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and I I don't know. They're just bodies. They do fun things sometimes. <laughs> if you don't like those fun things, that's cool call out to all my ace peeps <laughs> i like i and like that description peeps. of they do lots of fun things if you don't like those that's fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it's difficult because like i know a parent to a teenager and the teenager is, is realizing that they are arrow ace and the parent has never really interacted with the the LGBTQIA plus community in the last probably 20 years. And I get to say things like, you know, our church, because this person happens to be Orthodox as well, you know, our church has a place for people who are arrow ace, right? Mm-hmm. We've kind of like really cool with them. We call them monks. <laughs> and it is okay to be monastic. This is like in the entire history of the church. We're like married life, monastic life. And it's like, there's a lot more to life than that. But if we're going to work in binaries. Yep. (laughs) And I'll just say the the Orthodox church, like priests can marry. Um, Yes. So like, it's not like they're that. So I guess there's a difference between like priests and monks. No, no clergy can get married. But if they are already married, they can stay married. They can also divorce. So the reasoning behind that is we do have the practice of confession. And at no point should a man be able to hear the confessions of someone and then become romantically entangled with them. Hmm. That is spiritual abuse. A deacon, though in the church deacons don't hear confessions is still seen as an authority figure within a parish. Mm. And at no point should that authority figure be allowed to get romantically entangled with somebody. It, it would be spiritual abuse. And has the Orthodox church always been perfect on this? Fuck no. But I respect that. Because in order for a person to be ordained in the Orthodox Church, 
their family is interviewed. Our bishop is really, really, like, he knows our clergy's families. He knows their friends and things like that. Like, it's, he wants to be a part of their lives because most of our clergy are full-time clergy. Hmm. Their life is the things that they do for church business. Hmm. <clears throat> and he wants to make sure that they're not isolated. Mm-hmm. And he's a good guy. He's a monk. Uh, never been married. Ethnically Russian royalty. Renounced all of that. Uh, and then lived at Mount Athos, which is a historically... It's, it's like a peninsula that turns into an island out in Greece and women technically aren't allowed there, but we make exceptions for Mary? I don't get it. Um, <laughs> but one of the focuses of Athos, uh, you know, which is a flea-ridden, rat-infested island, um, by the way. Like, mm-hmm. it is not like a happy-go-lucky place 90% of the time. It is a place for a lot of men throughout history have gone there because of process addictions Mm. because of abuse and it is a place where men can not have to worry about social expectations of manliness and so there's been a lot of healing there despite the fact that women aren't allowed to visit Mm. which has always bothered me it's why i prefer saint catherine's monastery in mount sinai because women have always been welcome to visit there and we have records that the community there might have been founded in the uh like 120s by a woman we're not mm. sure <laughs> mm. monastics just show up at st catherine's <laughs> yeah so my friend's child is welcome to explore arrow ace identity and honestly i don't know why a parent wouldn't feel some relief with that <laughs> relationships tend to be a lot less complicated for teenagers when sex is off the table Mm. but i don't know i've never been in that situation yeah um man i could really go into Mm. you have a lot of thoughts i do well but I'm <clears throat> not sure if they're relevant just because <laughs> that's never stopped us before. <laughs> this is true. Um, because, you know, we've talked a lot about queer, queer matters and, you know, and patriarchy. And also like you've talked about like reproduction rights and stuff like that. You also attend, you know, the Orthodox church is not known for being queer friendly uh, being uh, abortion friendly and uh, being friendly to women in certain leadership positions, as far as I know. Or at least there's been this problem of like having places where women aren't yeah. there. There's no women priests, you know. Yeah, that's always been difficult. I think that has a lot to do with social history. Mm-hmm. So let's beat up on Russia a little bit. They make it easy these days. Russian culture and Slavic culture was very, very patriarchal in my understanding for most of its history. Is um, kind of still run by women a lot of the time, but still pretty patriarchal. Yeah, Russia breaks down when you get rid of the babushkas. Yeah. 
which we keep seeing over and over and over again, but I'm not going to hash those things out. But one of the first things that happened is Byzantine Greek missionaries went to the Slavs. To the point where Cosmos and Damien are still celebrated. Buried in Rome. Bastards. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so they go, and one of the first thing, one of the, the, the state of deacons, female deacons and deaconesses, which the history is kind of weird on because I, there's a lot of linguistic games yeah. that can be played. Deacon literally means servant or slave. I prefer the second translation because let's not beat around the bush on the fact of historical slavery, even within the Orthodox Church. Mm. And to call some of our leaders slaves, I think should be pointed out in the use of the word master. Mm. To avoid that is to be intellectually dishonest. <clears throat> mm. But moving past that, in Greek... You have a male definite article and a female definite article, linguistically speaking. And some writers use the female de definite article with the word for a male slave. They use, everybody pardon my Greek, he di diakonos, where a female slave is usually referred to as diakonisa. It has a feminine uh, grammatical ending as well. Hmm. And we have extant records of ho, which is the male mas uh, the male definite article, diakonissa. We have hey, diakonos, and we have hey, diakonissa. What does it mean? I don't know. I wasn't there. I've done hmm. my best to understand it. But one of the things that never really made it into the Kievan Rus and the Slavic understandings of orthodoxy was a deaconess. Mm. Fast forward, Russian piety has always seen abbesses, the female head of a monastery, as equal to a priest. Even though she's not, or she's, she's ordained, but she's ordained as a monk, not as a priest or a deacon. Hmm. So it is appropriate for people to go to a spiritual confessor who is not their priest. That has always been allowed. Hmm. And in Russia, New Year's was the time to go to the hermitage and to do confession, to start your year off right. So, for instance, <clears throat> uh, one one case that I am aware of is somebody who had suffered abuse, a, a woman who had suffered abuse at the hands of a man in religious authority. When she became Orthodox, she lived close enough to a women's monastery that she could visit frequently. And she did. And these wonderful human beings took care of her in a lot of ways that only women can take care of women mm. there there's i think there's a uniqueness in that in the same way that um men can take care of men and bees can take care of envies and the way in which i see the trans community taking care of each other there is something special in people with the same 
identity and the same struggles as you can lead to a lot of healing. Mm. And so she had permission and, and blessing or whatever from her priest to go to these nuns for confession. Now, the priest is still responsible responsible for making sure that you're going to confession as, as a practice. Uh, frequency is usually dictated by bishops and things like that, but there's always leniency. And so this woman was blessed to go to Mother Thecla or any of the other nuns for confession. And so they would hear the confession and she would show up for confession at her parish. There is finger quotes there for the audio recording. Um, <laughs> so she would go to confession and it, it would literally just be the priest reading the prayers that are appropriate for confession because she had already done the confession bit. And I don't know how I feel about that. Um, I'm not affected by it, but I do try and empathize with people who are. I did have a conversation at one point with a priest where he had received a phone call and somebody said, um, if I started wearing makeup to church, would you still commune me? And he said, yeah, but our guidance for everybody is that you're not supposed to wear chapstick or lipstick because it damages the icons and some other like really practical reasons that mm -hmm. we advise against that, right? Damages the icons. It You don't want to go living, you know, leaving kiss marks all over, you know, your priest's hand, the cup, <laughs> whatever. We kiss lots of things. And so it's always been a guideline to not uh, tint your lips is the old phrase for mm -hmm. it <laughs> in church. And, you know, so what? <laughs> you know, that was the thing. Mm -hmm. And this person who had called this, this priest said, well, what if I wore a skirt? And the priest's response is, we already have three or four gentlemen who wear kilts. I don't see what the difference would be. It's just an article of clothing. The guideline is that your private areas are covered. So you should be covered from your shoulders to your knees. That's our parish's guideline. Mm. Um, and that leaves it open for people to wear shorts, shoes, no shoes. We don't really care about all that. And this person in the conversation was really just trying to bring up a lot of things about trans identity mm -hmm. and see where the line was. Mm -hmm. And the priest was like, I... I don't care. Like, you're a human. Are you trying to find where I will reject you? Mm -hmm. And this person hung up on him. Now, I happen to know this person. The priest did not know that I knew this person when I, this was related. And I do want to say that the priest was very, very sensitive to the privacy of this person. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but not all priests are like that. Some priests are real shitbags. This priest is one that I trust and that I'm willing to hold in high esteem. But like I said earlier, no hierarchy should ever be without critique. And so I do have critiques about reproductive rights and the ordination of women and all of that like all of that not this makes it sounds like like it's unimportant i'm trying to use it as verbal free like shorthand mm -hmm. <laughs> um i i am 
concerned about these things. And my personal relationship with my church is complicated because humans are complicated. Mm-hmm. Where I would draw the line is people who I do not think that gender affirming surgeries is mutilation. At the same time, if you wish to call it mutilation, and if you're somebody of that bent, um, come look at my black lungs, my damaged liver, and my self-harm scars, and tell me that I have not mutilated my body, and Mm. am still in good standing with the church. So if you really want to go tit for tat, fuck off. And so I have a hesitation with any priest who does not see part of their job being harm reduction. If you're going to allow your parish to get wildly and inappropriately drunk at the church for a feast day or encourage overeating or other harms that one can do, I think that you should rethink your view of Christ and the metaphor of Christ and his body because you're being harmful. Mm. And so, yeah, it's complicated and I cannot speak on behalf of the Orthodox Church, especially on these issues. But I'm so grateful I'm a priest and I don't have to. (laughs) That you're not a (laughs) priest, right? Exactly, that I'm not a priest. Did I say I was a priest? I'm not a priest. (laughs) Don't. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Nope. I'm so happy I am not a priest and I don't have to say, you know, this is the thing I get to say, well, if that's the thing, then all of these things are also the thing. And maybe you need to rethink the thing (laughs) because hierarchy should always be criticized. Always. There's no such thing as a perfect hierarchy no matter what medieval scholars try and come up with. I'm, uh, yeah, what, what you were saying about communion and man, that I'm using, I'm realizing I'm using the word man all the time. I don't know why that is. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Sexist language. Uh, <sighs> Patriarchy. <laughs> Patriarchy. What I was meaning to say was uh, what your priest was saying about, are you just waiting for me to reject you in some way like that? That just hits me um, because I, I have spent so much of my life basically looking for when the person will reject me. And I, I even have a, a poem where I say, I am tired of lusting after rejection, expecting love. And, you know, I had one priest who I talked to who was saying, you know, I I asked point blank about this and, and he said, well, if you ever did any sort of medical transition, uh, you know, I wouldn't be able to give you communion. 
And then I talked to a different priest and that person said, well, I don't think I really could reject based on that, given all of the surgeries that people have that anyone could have, like you could have a problem with all sorts of surgeries. Like how, how was, how am I supposed to delineate? Like how am I supposed to differentiate between this and something else, even if maybe the the church doesn't stand by this, which I really sort of respected, but yeah, I, I'm very familiar with that idea of asking small little questions until like the point of rejection and the idea of being cut off from communion, right? Which has the word commune in it, community is so painful to me and and the idea of being cut off right like it it is this body thing it's all about body and being part of a body of people and being with god and being embodied so yeah that's what i was going to say i we pray throughout the year but especially at lent that God show us our own heart because we don't know it. And at the same time, ask men currently, flawed men, to make decisions on how their perspective of someone else's heart, someone else's heart is. And the way intellectually the Orthodox Church gets around that is we say, but they're blessed by the Holy Spirit with special insight, blah, 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 blah. Well, yeah, but they're still people. And it is difficult to be required to be a caregiver. And if you think of clergy as representative caregivers, it is very easy to see how abusive their own parishes are to them as well as the community at large. Um, <clears throat> Patriarch Kirill, former KGB, is supposed to be the head caregiver of all Orthodox Christians in Russia. And to ignore his own failings in history... I think would be a failure to critique hierarchy. To ignore the abuses of the bishops and metropolitans that he has appointed under him would be a failure to critique hierarchy. At the same time, he is expected to be a global political leader. And I don't know how to reconcile my empathy for the difficulty of that position and my frustration at the person who was appointed to do it. Hmm. And that's on a really big level. And I, I pick on him because 
if you follow religious news, it's very easy for his name to come up. How much more so for a parish priest in the rural South, where most of the people who are interested in attending your church probably are coming from evangelicalism and fundamentalism? How do you teach them the difficulty of understanding and empathizing with the other when the other is subjugated to social ghettos and often economic ghettos. My small town has a very vibrant black community that I've caught glimpses of, but I've never been invited into. I don't know where they live. I don't know where they meet. I don't know where they hang out. Seeing black people in my tiny-ass town is somewhat rare because of social ghettoing. Seeing the Hispanic community is difficult in my little town. They don't engage and interact with a lot of, because of my position and the color of my skin, what I see as the default culture of this small town. But in the same way that we were talking about guys does not mean that guy is the default. White is not the default. <clears throat> but because of my family's uh, engagement with the Spanish language and Spanish culture, or Latinx culture, we get to see it a little bit more. But we have to go to it. We have to go out of our normal course of activities to be a part of that community and to uplift and be, engage with that community. Because there is a separation. And I don't know how I would expect somebody who has probably grown up in that sort of community themselves to know how to engage with communities that are in many ways hidden from the main stream of discourse in a geographic location. It is incredibly, incredibly difficult for people who have only ever known bigotry to see it as bigotry. And this is what we're asking. There's a lot of communities that call themselves Orthodox that would turn away the unhoused, would turn away the uh, people fighting mental disorders addiction there would be there's di there's just a difficulty and it, it's not a failure of empathy in that the person doesn't have empathy it's just sometimes you don't know what you don't know which is incredibly concerning to me and why i am willing to stop and think about my own sexual identities my own gender identities and what does internalizing the narrative that I was handed mean? Because if I believed the narrative that I was handed, my family openly called me metrosexual for many years mm. because I liked lattes and showered every day. Mm. Didn't know that that was uh, a thing. Mm. And I just kind of laughed it off. I come from a military culture. 
and the military sells hypermasculinity in a very narrow defined way to a lot of young men it is not every military service person it is not every military service man but it's a lot of them and that harms them as well because i've watched their marriages fall apart because of internalizing misogyny i've watched men ruin their own marriages because of double standards that they have internalized things that they thought were okay but aren't like alcoholism it's okay if dad's an alcoholic but mom better not be and in a military context that is the truth it is okay for a man oh he's he's a serviceman he has seen some shit he's been to war he's allowed to deal with his experiences through addiction but as soon as a child or a spouse calls them on this they're the bad guys mm. and when i when i talk about patriarchy and i talk about you know i try and avoid the term toxic masculinity because masculinity itself is not toxic it is a method of internalizing patriarchy that really harms men one of the ways one of the the stumbling blocks for me with my abuse did that mean that my sexual identity was what was supposed to match that abuse hmm. and the answer is no i was a victim jesus christ what the fuck are you talking about get out of my office <laughs> you know like it's i'm sorry it, it's to assume that violent acts against you and your body should define how your body gets to enjoy or experience the world is really fucked up. Mm. And I hate this narrative. I don't even want to talk about it, but I'm going to. Mm. I hate this narrative that trans people are just abused people trying mm. to get out of the bodies that were abused. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because fuck that it's their body let them enjoy it however they please don't don't make them be identified and by their their traumas mm -hmm. because that is the most dehumanizing thing I can think of I wouldn't have a child today if I internalized the idea that because I was assaulted as a child that I had to enjoy that sort of ex sexual experience. And it just... Yeah, I, I have complicated feelings about my body and my sexual identities. But I found a place that I get to be safe. And that's what I want for everybody. I want them to be safe. I want them to live. And yeah, religion's tied up in that because people are complicated. I'm not always happy with religion, and that's okay. I'm part of a religious community that gets to be angry at itself. And I'm... I'm welcomed as a guest, I think if nothing else, often an ally in the queer community 
and I get to feel safe there too. And I get to talk about harm reduction with people who experience life differently than me. Mm. And that's what I want. I want people to be safe. Thank you. I um, just want to check in with you, see how you're doing. Kind of emotional. Yeah. Are you safe? I am safe. Good. I worry about that. Because I love you. Yeah. I I love you and I'm very glad that I can say that that we can be friends. And I mean we've talked through some shit together, you know. We've <laughs> you know. Have we now? Have we now? Like <laughs> Yeah, um, and I'm glad that we've been able to do that and to make it through the anger and the insults and the like, you know, shitty behavior. Not 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 just you know accepting shitty behavior, but like working through shitty behavior on both our parts. Um, Setting healthy boundaries so we get to be safe. Yeah, emotionally safe is important too. Mm-hmm. And I trust you with my emotions. Mm. And yeah. Um. Well, okay, we we're definitely over time, but which I should have just expected with you. Um, <laughs> Me you talk a lot, say it ain't so. But like, I I want to ask you my last two questions. Um. But I think I think this is an important question, given all the difficulty that we've talked about. Um, I started adding this question in, which is, what what are some ways that you have found that you really enjoy your body, um, or specific memories, or, or anything like that? I absolutely love cuddling with my child Mm. we do hugs and kisses every night before bed and it is based on consent not every night is like that Mm. and that's okay i've set boundaries and where i want to be kissed my child tries to kiss me on the lips a lot (laughs) i'm like "Mm, mm, i don't do that just uncomfortable with that and that's okay i'm allowed to say no just as my child is Mm. so that's one one way that i use my body i also really like making things my child brought home a broken toy from school from one of his friends because my child's dad can fix anything Mm. and i appreciated that and i told him you know thank you very much for the compliment i cannot fix everything though but i will look and i will try Mm. you know we talked about that um lately i've been doing a lot of painting for like minifigures and such Mm. 
And I've recently started playing bass again. Bass and guitar. I like that my brain and my body get to partner to do something fun mm. and beautiful. It is easy for me to stop and think of the things that I wish my body could do mm. or could do better or for longer. But I have a, I have a partner who can listen to those things and help me achieve them. I have a partner who understands that it's okay to feel bad about your body sometimes. Mm. It is not a unique human experience. I really like being able to bring beauty into my into the world through the cooperation of brain and body. And when my body gets to take me to uh, <laughs> art galleries and mm -hmm. such, or concerts, I get to dance. I get to, to stand in awe of something beautiful. And I couldn't... The standing part is important. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the physically being located somewhere matters to me. And it has helped my relationship with my body. Mm. What about you? Hmm. Good question. Um, you wrote it. I did. I wrote it. <laughs> I enjoy... I enjoy being out in nature a lot. I really enjoy when it's warmer and I can go outside with my bare feet and you know walk on the grass or even even walking on the sidewalks i don't want to do that too much but that can feel good as well and being grounded you know I, i've learned the importance of physical like of ground and you know the more upset you are or the worse that you feel you tend to feel better the closer you get to the ground <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I really enjoy that. I, I enjoy rain. I enjoy feeling the rain. I enjoy greenery. You know, I'm in a place that's beautiful and there's just moss everywhere. You know, it's, it's something's always green, whatever time of year it is. And I love going into the woods and walking and seeing water and and all of that. I also enjoy going to the gym. I enjoy boxing a lot. I didn't realize how much fun it was going to be. There's something really, really fun about not just the punching. The punching is very, uh, very sort of cathartic, but there's also, I've been learning how to feel my own body. And that is incredible. And recognizing, oh, my feet, my feet are connected to the ground. What is this? I never thought about this as being important. And now I'm, I never used to use my feet at all, really. And now learning how to use them and learning that, oh, my feet are connected to my legs. My legs are connected to my hips. I have to use my hips all the time for this, which I did not grow up using my hips. You know, this is connected to my shoulders and, and my arms, you know. It's a really embodying thing. I have so many other things that I love now. I, I like that I have a long list of things that I could say that I enjoy. And I have such trouble with dissociation and, you know, and pain and all of that that I do disconnect a lot of the time. 
but I am so much more aware of enjoyment and pleasure. Um, yeah. Good. And I'll ask my last question, which is just, is there anything else that you want to say before we end? I think I said it two questions ago. Mm, yes. Be safe. Make sure the people around you are safe. We can't do this alone. Well, thank you very much for talking with me. And thank you for having me. I feel so special. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, who would want to hear my thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> bringing up the white cis straight crowd we've got daniel episode of spit takes <laughs> <laughs> oh god if that's your your pre-roll so <laughs> now i'm just gonna be suspicious every time i drink something <laughs> that's what i'm here for wait that sounds really bad up oh, spit take <laughs> ah i'm like must swallow <laughs> um oh gosh Another spit take with Daniel. Yep. Um, it's the spinoff show. <laughs> it's just us doing comedy. It's like, so in this one, I like ask serious questions about body. In this other one, I just make. In this Daniel one, we make take. innuendos while trying to take sips of coffee and tea. 